much of my heart here. Uh, and uh, I go to other places and I, I preach my heart out. But somehow when I come here, I, I just want to try to talk to you as a father. Thanks for that good music. Thanks for the great singing. I don't know of any school in America that sings like you do. And I, I, don't, I don't believe that most of you students have figured out what a privilege you have to be here. You have a privilege to be here because this is sad to say one of the only schools in the universe that figured out what Christian education is supposed to do. And very simply, Christian education in the context of whether it's whether it's at elementary or secondary or at a college like this or at a seminary or at a Christian university, the purpose of Christian education ultimately can only be to equip men and women to advance the kingdom of God and the spheres of influence that he in eternity past had in mind when he drew the design for each one of us. This is a school that understands that, has a board that understands that, has a president that is committed to that and understands it, has a student life staff that is committed to that, has a faculty that is, is committed to that. And that makes all the difference in the world. You have a student life staff, you have a president, a student life staff, a board, a faculty, all of which, whose lives are worthy for you to follow. And perhaps the most important thing about all of education is not what you learn, but who you become. And I know of no place in the universe where you have a better opportunity to be equipped to achieve the potential that God has in mind for each one of you. That's what I want to talk to you about today. I'm tempted to tell you a lot of stories about recent trips and that kind of thing, and I'll try to weave a little bit of that in. But the burden of my heart today is to look in the Word of God together with you. Looking at the, the very essence of Christianity, the very essence of why each one of us is on the planet. Because often, even with people who walk a godly life and who are, who are in sound biblical churches and doing everything to have a good Christian life, but are missing the mark as to why God has them on the planet, falling short of the fulfillment that God has in mind for them falling short of the great joy that he has in mind for those who are willing to pour themselves out attempting to follow the Apostle Paul as a drink offering, to give all that you have every day, what for? For the advancement of the kingdom of God. You say, am I thinking that you all should be pastors or you should all be missionaries? Certainly not. However, <laughs> I must tell you that here at the Master's College and the Master's Seminary, there must be several hundred people that God has in mind to go to the 430 million seeking hearts in what used to be the communist country. Some of you have been there. 
And those of you who have been there, when you come back, you feel woefully inadequate to begin to describe what you've experienced. How do you describe when, when no one, in a period of several months, if you go for a summer experience, rejects you when you seek to tell them the gospel or to give them a fact? How do you describe that? How do you describe churches that, that when you worship with them, even though, even though you may not understand a word of their language, the Spirit of God will minister to your heart in such a way that often you will have the most meaningful worship experience of your life and you haven't understood one word. How could it be? Because the churches of the former Soviet Union are filled with people who gave up everything for Christ. They were denied education, they were denied careers, they were denied everything. And frankly, as they look back, they can't figure out what they missed. Because in these churches, for example, I must tell you one statistic. Recently, a pastor, he's pastor of the Central Baptist Church in Minsk, in Belarus. And we had him at our annual conference at Send International back in Michigan in, in the month of July. And I asked him concerning divorce rates in white Russia, Belarus. And he said, well, it's about one out of three marriages fail in divorce. And I said, well, what about in the churches in Belarus, the Baptist churches in Belarus? And he said, about one out of a thousand marriages fail in our churches. And I said, what about your church, the Central Baptist Church of Men? And he said, he said, I'm sorry to say that we have had a divorce. But he was quick to explain that in the 75-year history of the church, where they have 1,200 members, it only had one divorce, but... But it was a young woman who, against the advice of the elders, had insisted upon marrying a non-believer. And I said, how can you explain such a success in, in marriage, and especially with the terrible living conditions of often, more often, usually, three generations, grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and several children living in six or seven hundred square feet. I mean, they, they have the conditions that should produce the worst divorce rate in the world. And as I asked him to explain why they would have so few divorces, he, he said, well, when we first hear of someone who's having any tension in their marital relationship, if we hear something today, tonight, we go to their apartment and we try to help them see that at the basis of all relational problems is sin in one or both of their lives. And if they don't understand that that night, we go back the next night and the next night and until they understand and see the sin in their lives and then we push them till they repent. And he said, and God is honored God. And he held up his Bible. And he said, we just try to do what this book says. The Word of God is sufficient. Jesus Christ is sufficient. They haven't had the distractions one of the reasons that they have such a high success rate in their marriages is because they weren't allowed to go to the universities. They didn't hear anything about psychology that explains away the reality of sin. They still believe in sin. And they trust completely in the Word of God for their answers to everything. Boy, what a joy and to go and help them a little bit. And they need so much help. You can imagine just 
you know, barely more than a thousand churches in the Ukraine and 50 million people who are searching, hundreds, maybe thousands of cities and villages that have no church at all, some of them with a hundred thousand people or more, not even one church, whole community begging, won't somebody come and start a church? In Russia, the same thing. Over 1,100 Baptist churches in a country that stretches 11 time zones. So much bigger than the United States. There are way more than 1,100 churches in Los Angeles County, several thousand, no doubt, evangelical churches in Los Angeles County. Well, I, those are the things I wasn't going to tell you today. There's some basics that are absolutely essential for you to achieve your potential. That's what's in my heart. I want to see everyone who God brings to this school. When you leave here, be careful to follow the leading of the Spirit of God and do for a life's work what God has designed you for. Turn with me, please, to Matthew in chapter 16. While you're turning there, on this last trip, I took a young man with me, a very sharp young seminary graduate. I wanted him to see through his own eyes the opportunities, the opportunities to reach the lost, the opportunities to help the churches, the opportunities to help build seminaries and Bible schools, the opportunities to work even with government leaders in many countries now. And after he had been trapped, we went to 21 cities and eight countries in 24 days. And after about the third or fourth day, this young man came to me. He said, I don't understand how in the world you're having trouble recruiting people. He said, you should be able to go to college, Bible colleges and seminaries across America, and everybody would want to go. And he kept saying that every couple of days. And even as we're here today, he's at Dallas Seminary speaking. He's a graduate of Dallas Seminary who was arguing with the rest of the faculty, with the faculty there over the lordship of Christ before Dr. MacArthur wrote the book. A young man thoroughly, thoroughly sound in every way, now praying about coming with us. But he just can't believe that whole Bible college, is, he, he said we should have to come and say, now some of you are going to have to stay back because there are going to be a few pulpits open, there are going to be a few jobs we have to help fill in America. I, I need to take some of you, I guess, maybe one at a time on some of these trips and so you can experience it firsthand. If you go just for summertime, that's great, but if you were, some would travel with me personally day after day and see the kind of stuff that God has given us opportunity to do in all these countries. I've been recruiting, we've been recruiting people, uh, Don and Harvey Strauss doing a great job, the others in our personnel division at Send International, for almost three years to come to these countries. Some would say it's wonderful. We now have, I think, 34 people. Uh, that are either studying in these countries the language or already ministering there, 34, but we need, you know, 34,000, I think, or maybe 34 million. And so, well, I'm rejoicing with the 34 and saying, look, where are, are the rest? But I'm not here today to recruit you for that. I, I'm here only today to try to help you from the Word of God. We focus on what's important in determining what you would do with your life. What are you going to do with your life? How many of you have a New American Standard Bible? Let's stand and read a passage together if you have a New American Standard. Okay, chapter 16, verse 21 to 25. Beginning with verse 21. Okay, let's read it together to 25. 
from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. You may be seated. Everyone could have stood, sorry. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to give those an award who has a new American standard. I just like to read the word of God together, you know? Uh, in the church where, where I pastored before coming to Master's College, we did it every service, you know, and we, we encourage, everybody encouraged to have the same version, and it was so powerful to have 25 other people reading together, and I missed that. Peter loved Jesus. He was his cherished friend, his tremendous teacher, and his leader. Peter couldn't bear the thought of Jesus suffering terribly and being killed. Project yourself into that situation. How could Jesus respond with such a severe rebuke to Peter's kindness? Because Peter's priority, good and virtuous as it was, was the wrong priority. God's plan for the life of Jesus included the cross. It is why Jesus came to this planet, and you know that. It was the reason he gave up the glories of heaven. He came to die on the cross. But Peter, with loving regard for his beloved friend, Jesus, was ready to stand in the way of God's will. Peter was guilty of setting his mind upon the things of men. Jesus harshly rebuked him. Let's look at verse 23 again. He even said, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's interest. I, I want to ask you the question this morning. What are you setting your mind on? Education is the most self-centered pursuit known to mankind. you realize that? That's the great danger you have when you're studying. I mean, nobody can do your study for you. You can't do anybody else's study. You've got to concentrate. You've got to spend more time each day and each night and through the night in some cases and the totally selfish endeavor of putting things in your mind and trying to get them back out in an orderly way so that you can survive, right? Nothing more selfish and yet nothing more necessary. You must be equipped, but the hazard of being in the educational process, especially those of you who will go on to graduate school and you continue in the pursuit of feeding your mind day in and day out. The tendency, the subtle temptation, you won't even be aware it's happening, is that more and more your mind is settled on the things of men. 
and not on the things of God. So much stimuli to process and keep in order and still come back and still have your your life total, the sum and substance of your life focused on the things of God. How do you do that? Jesus sees this opportunity to teach all the other disciples as well. Verse 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This leads to the the most vital question. Do you want to come after Jesus? He says, it's an invitation. It's a command. Come after. If anyone it isn't a command in this case. If anyone wishes to come after me, it's an invitation. He's inviting you to come after him. What does it, does it imply? You say, of course. If I say, how many people want to come after Jesus? Doesn't everybody here? Everybody wants to come after Jesus. It involves three essentials. Very clear, very basic. Some of you are thinking, why is he so basic? I'm so basic because most of us miss this and have to keep being brought back to it throughout our lives. And some people miss it for a lifetime and have a good life. And people would look and say they have a happy family, have a good life, everything is nice, but they've missed God's best for their life. When he says, deny yourself, deny yourself. I don't think he's talking about going for yogurt every other night instead of every night. No? I don't think he's talking about cutting your date, dating life back a few nights away. So what he's talking about here is that which is most important in your life. He's talking about Who is writing the plan for your life? Who is writing the plan for your life? When he, when he says deny yourself, he's, he's asking us to agree not to write our own plan for our life. But to accept the plan that God, in his omniscience, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, in his in all his attributes, God has a plan for your life. And he's saying, when he says deny yourself, he's saying, accept God's plan for your life. Are you ready to accept God's plan for your life? Jesus denied himself the riches and the glories of heaven. He even denied himself a comfortable existence on earth. He didn't even have a house. He had nowhere, he didn't even have a condo or even one room like at Kiev University. You know, we have uh, new students at Kiev University in brand new dormitory apartments, but they don't have hot water yet and they've been there for a month and half of them don't have refrigerators and one of them doesn't have a sink and some of them don't even have toilet seats, as you could imagine, because the university wasn't quite finished, but they had to move in. But they all have more than Jesus had. Way more than Jesus had. He didn't have anywhere to live. He didn't have as good a place to live as the foxes or, or the birds because he denied himself a comfortable existence on earth. 
as the Son of God, as the creator of the universe and the sustainer of all things. He denied even the writing of his own plan for his life. Think about that. What does it involve denying yourself? It involves repentance. Repentance. What is at the heart of repentance when you come to Christ? I know this so thoroughly because it was my own life. I grew up in a family that went nowhere to church. Literally, nowhere to church. We went to church every time the place was open. My mother was the organist for 46 years. My dad was in charge of whatever they did. They were building a building. He was in charge of the building project. If they were doing this, he was always he was the key lay leader in the church his whole life. I was an only child. And so obviously, I went nowhere but to church. I knew the gospel from the time I was a tiny tot, and I, I never questioned it. I knew that the Bible was the word of God from the time I was a tiny tot. I never questioned that. But I didn't become a Christian until I was 28. How could that be? Pure and simple. I wrote the plan for my life. I didn't want God to interfere with it. I had some things I wanted to do. I had a lot of things I wanted to do that I wasn't sure God wanted me to do, but I wanted to do them. And so I kept saying to God, you know, I'm going to be there soon. I just have a few things, and then I'll be there. That's a very risky way to live. There may be some of you here today who are still like that. You grew up in the same kind of family. And maybe you prayed a prayer. And your mother always said when you were four. And maybe today, at age 20, 19, 21, you're where I was until I was 28. Don't let it go past today. I was writing the plan for my life. And I, when I came to Christ, what I did was hand over the plan for my life to God. What a relief that was. That, that was an incredible relief. In addition to being forgiven for all the other sins that I had done. But the, the greatest sin of all, the greatest sin of all is to refuse God's will for your life. There's an incredible thing about the spiritual condition in Ukraine and in Russia. There's a sin consciousness. I alluded to it a moment ago. Somehow, people know that they're lost. They have great guilt in their heart and they need to deal with this guilt. They have great sin and they know that it's sin and they have to deal with that. And a few weeks ago, I found myself in a small football stadium in a city called Nikolaya. And I got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. That's where I gave the plan of my life over to God. But ever since that time, I, I've been increasingly unsure of mass evangelism. It's been a lot of wasted money, a lot of confusion, a lot of people think they got saved, but they didn't. Usually not enough follow-up and so on. So I, I'm really not big on mass evangelism. But a couple, that was the second time that I agreed to do that in the former Soviet Union. It was a Saturday night, and football stadium, not huge, um, not a huge number of people there, maybe 8,000. And I decided that I was going to preach the closest, tightest gospel that I could preach. I gave no illustrations. I, I just decided I'm going to get up and say, I've come to tell you about Jesus Christ. And I spent about 10 minutes talking about the attributes of Christ. And then I spent about 10 minutes talking 
about the authority from which I have gotten the attributes of Christ and who he is, what it means, all of that from the Bible. And then I spent five or ten minutes talking about sin and judgment, and then I spent about five minutes talking very clearly about repentance and what it is and what it isn't. And I talked along these lines as well, very strongly, very much force about that. And then I talked about saving faith and what that is and what it isn't. And they had insisted that I give the invitation, which I usually want the Russians to do that because they're much more effective in their language and in their culture. And then it, it had rained in the midst, and, and so the field was wet in front of the platform. And, and they had told me that it would be better not to have the people come on the grass because it would ruin the grass. And then the manager of the stadium was there on the platform also, and he said it would really be better if, if they only even walk on the running track. It would be better if they just stay in their places. And so I said, you got to give me a long mic for it. They gave me a long mic for it, and so I walked on. And as I was walking towards the track, the stadium manager sent a runner to me, and he said, the stadium manager said, it's okay if you haven't come down on the track if they want to. I'd already told him they couldn't, so I said, now you could come down. Those of you, I just told you what it means to repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. And I said, so I want to invite those of you when the Spirit of God is working in your heart to join me right down here on this track. And together we will pray and help you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ Jesus. And they just started coming down out of the And somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 of those 8,000 people came down surrounding me. There I was with a microphone. And so I had them pray after me, a very careful sinner's prayer. I wish I had a tape of what they were saying. It just resounded out of that those stadium walls. These people were so so sincere and earnest about repenting of their sins and, and giving the plan of their life over to God. And when I finished and when I said Amen, I I looked over this way and there was a woman beckoning to me, an elderly woman, probably seventy-five or eighty years of age, with a lot of character lines in her face, a tall woman. And she said, I with tears in her eyes. She said, I'm just so thankful that you came tonight because I never heard any of this before tonight. I never heard a word of what you said. We have whole nations like that who never heard the gospel before, who, who, who are in such a context where God is working and where he's pouring out his spirit that the first time they hear, they understand and the spirit of God quickens their hearts and they put their trust in Christ Jesus. Repentance is at the center of saying to God, I'm sorry that I have been the driver of my life. I give it over to you. That's what it means to deny yourself. And Jesus says, next, take up your cross. Boy, that is so misunderstood. There are all kinds of crazy things being preached on television. It's really simple what it means. At the essence, what was the cross of Jesus? It was to do the will of the Father. It was to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father in his life was to come to earth and go to the cross. It can only, therefore, be that your cross and my cross that, that he invites us to pick up, to take up, is simply also to do the will of the Father. 
if it was his cross, the will of the Father, for him to give up the glories and come to planet Earth, to go to the cross, then it must be your cross and my cross as the will of the Father to take the good news of his cross to all the nations of the earth. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, in verses 14 and 15, the, the Apostle Paul reminds us that it was Christ's assignment to die for us. But he doesn't stop there. He then tells us that it is our assignment to live for him. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Turn there a minute, please. You can't see this passage too many times. This is where Jesus tells us the, the top priority in living for him. What is the top priority in living for him? And when he says to us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The only time he ever said that. It's the most powerful statement in all of the Bible. Then he more specifically tells us what your cross and my cross is, what our part is in doing the will of the Father. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Some of you are thinking, Am I teaching you that every Christian is supposed to become a missionary? Of course not. I'm only showing you what the Word of God says, that clearly God's plan for every one of our lives, the central theme in all of our lives, has to be taking the good news about the gospel to the nations and discipling them. And then Jesus says, follow me. Follow me is the last thing. What does it mean to follow Christ? That's got to be pretty simple. It means to live with his priorities. What are his priorities? To seek and to save that which is lost. That's what he came for. To die on the cross. Doing the will of the Father. That's his priority. If we follow Jesus, we do the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? To deny ourselves. To take up the cross. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18, Jesus said to Peter and Andrew as he was calling them, remember what he said? Follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men. I submit to you that I really wonder, therefore, is it possible to follow Jesus? Is it possible to really be a Christian and not be a fisher of men? Is it possible? i leave you with the question. Therefore, what is God's plan for your life? The answer to the biggest question of your life is, or I should say, the biggest question of your life has to be, how can I best 
contribute to the advancement of the kingdom of God? How can I best contribute to the advancement of the kingdom of God? Given your uniqueness, given your personality, given your physical stature, given your facial appearance, given your spiritual gifts, given your talents, given your accent, what part of the country you grew up in, given your family background, given everything about you that makes you special and unique, given the interests that you have, given the things that you like to do. The question then is, how can I best contribute all that God made me, all that I am in his marvelous plan? How can I best use all that God has given me to contribute to the advancement of the kingdom of God? with 430 million people begging for the gospel. The answer for several hundred of you must be evangelism and church planting in Central Europe and the former Soviet Union. But the answer for many of the rest of you is as varied as you are, is as unique as you are, well, when Jesus tells us to make disciples of a nation, to make disciples of a nation, you've got to impact every aspect of that nation. And I have never had quite so much fun as I'm beginning to have in the nation of Albania. The nation of Albania, as most of you know, is the country that was the most thoroughly destroyed and devastated by atheistic communism. They had a dictator that that passed legislation that made it essential for all citizens to be atheists. They closed every single church in the whole country. And if you were caught with a Bible, you would go to prison for a long time if not be killed. But God, in his marvelous sovereignty and omnipotence and perfect timing, within the last year and a half, brought down that communist empire as well. And now we have the little nation of Albania, three million people. I should say three million wonderful people. So beaten, so oppressed, so devastated, so humbled, that I believe has the potential of becoming the most thoroughgoing Christian nation in the history of the universe. Wouldn't that be like our God to do that? To take the nation that he let Satan do the most damage to and now turn the tide and it seems almost within the framework of the holiness of God that only that would be fair. But now, the nation of Albania will be given the greatest opportunities to become a thoroughgoing Christian nation. Now we've been going there as, with invitations from various government divisions. I went there the first time back in February and, and then talking through things with the Ministry of Education that led to with Dr. Stead and, and Dr. Jones and, and um, uh, Dr. Morley and Professor Bealey all going in June. I don't know if you all know that. Those men went over for about 10 days and spent those 10 days brainstorming with the leaders of the Ministry of Education of this country and with the head of their pedagog with the, the leaders of their pedagogical institute, with the leaders of their national textbook company. And the Master's College began to have a tremendous influence in the discipling of the nation of Albania. I was just there about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I sat down with 
the president of the National Textbook Publishing Company. He began to ask about Dr. Stead because he developed a great love and respect for Dr. Stead. His name is Olya. You might pray for him. He's seeking, very open, not yet saved. And he had a paper there, many pages, and he said, do you know what I'm working on? I said, no. He said, he said, I'm just finishing translating this long and very outstanding article which your Dr. Brian Morley wrote for us. It's on the subject of transitioning, guidelines for transitioning away from, from a Marxist-based system of education. And I said, what are you going to do with it? He said, well, you know we have about 40,000 teachers in Albania and we send a newspaper to them. And he said, we're going to print Dr. Morley's article in serial form and send it to every teacher in Albania. And then I, then I went over to meet with the president of the university, Iranian University, a new man, because the Albanians, when they overthrew the communists, they got rid of them. So there are no communists in leadership. And so you're all, you're, but you're dealing with people in, in brand new jobs that they don't know how to do. But they seem to be very good people and very, very interested in learning how to do their jobs well. So I sat down with the president of the university, who I'm had, whom I hadn't met before, but our four professors had met, and they had had a profound influence on his life back in June. And so he almost immediately gave me a request. He said, I hope you can help me. I said, we'll do whatever we can. He said, I've just recently had this, to dismiss the entire faculty in philosophy and the entire faculty in sociology because those, those guys were hopeless. They're teaching the wrong stuff. They were still from the communist era, teaching Marxist philosophy. And he said, and then I appointed five or six men who are study, studying how, what to do for the future, how we should redesign those departments and what we should be teaching and so on. But then he looked at me and he said, he said but they don't know what they're doing. They need help. Could you send somebody to help them? And long story short, when you're on your mission trip, please be praying for Dr. Brian Morley because on October 7th, he will be leaving for Tirana where he will spend seven or eight days working with this team, helping them do the beginning of the design of how a, a biblically-based department of philosophy and a biblically-based department of sociology would look at Tehran University in the capital city of Albania. Then I went to meet with the director of the Pedagogical Institute. He asked me if I couldn't send some people so we could, and I, again, Dr. Stead and the others had been talking earlier in June, and I was just going to follow up with the way that God was using, using them. And he began to talk about doing a conference in early January where we would bring the right people to be able to, to teach the key teachers of the whole country. They want to bring the lead teacher of each of the 43 districts, school districts in the country to a conference for about four or five days. You know what the subject is? They want, they want us to teach them how to integrate values into all their curriculum, all the different subject areas, primary and secondary schools. And without saying it, they're talking about biblical values. It's really interesting because the country is technically now 70% Muslim. 70% Muslim, that's by heritage. But the communists took away their Muslim practice 
and really their, their Muslim faith, they're now just God-fearing people with open hearts and open minds. And whoever gets there first is going to write on their hearts what they think is true. And so here we have the Master's College, and, and, and big universities are hearing about that, what we're doing there, prestigious universities, and they can't figure out why, why Little Master's College is doing this. A Christian school, how in the world could we have this opportunity that the USC doesn't have, for example, as Craig Bealey would tell you? How could that be? Real simple, isn't it? He served a sovereign God. He's in full control. He allowed Satan to seize him in that nation. And now he's giving that nation opportunity to find him and to come to him. So I need Daniels. I need his We're working not only with the Ministry of Education, we're working with the Ministry of Agriculture. We're, we're trying to take a... They've invited us to bring a hundred Christian farmers to come over and and teach the new farmers in Albania. See, they broke up their collective farms. They're already about privatizing, which the bigger former communist countries haven't done yet. They've already broken up all their collective farms. So the guys that were the little peasants on the farms milking the cows and spreading the manure, each one of them now has a plot of land that he's supposed to figure out you know, how to be the manager of his little farm. And he has no idea where to start. And the food supply of the nation depend upon that. And so the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Agriculture got together and they said, Boy, you know, maybe the Master's College, I mean, maybe Send International and the Master's College could, could help us bring farmers who, who could train these men, but also give them new values to live by. And so, pray that God would raise up a hundred Christian farmers. Uh, and we have a plan that they would go over a period of ten weeks in January, February, and March, uh, ten at a time, for two weeks each over ten weeks. And then the Ministry of Construction we're working with, and on and on. It's, it's as if the Lord is giving us an opportunity to, to begin to disciple the nation of Albania. We have no people. I don't have anybody to send there to live. I'm hoping that this sharp young guy I was telling you about, who's at Dallas Seminary speaking this week, I, that's one of the three options that I have in praying about. To go there, live there, have a presence with all these government leaders that we're working with, and start a Bible study. If one of us could just go there for six months, we could start a Bible study. All these guys would come to a Bible study. We could have one at the Ministry of Education, one at the Ministry of Agriculture, one at the University. We could have, well, and we just have all the key people to start with. We could go plant churches and all the key leaders in the country would come and get saved. I'm sure of it. But I have nobody to take. We need Daniel. Remember what Daniel was like? What kind of people we need? We need people to go and help the churches in Poland. We have now um, two couples in Poland, but we need so many more. We have two couples in Poland, young couples that, that, that have only have an internship in, in church planting. And, that, and the Baptist leadership in Poland has scheduled a church planting conference for all the pastors in Poland to come to in December. And these two guys and their wives have gotten so much into the hearts of the church leaders that they're advertising them as, as the big experienced church planters to come and learn how to plant churches with. Yeah? They know more about it than those Polish brothers because they were never allowed to do it. We have a professor and his wife now teaching at a new seminary in Czechoslovakia. We need so many more people to Czechoslovakia. We have our first man in Sofia, Bulgaria. And on, next week, on Monday, our new Bible school starts, full-time Bible school in Sofia, Bulgaria. The trained pastors with 24 full-time students. We have a first couple in deputation to move to Romania. We don't have our first people in the former nations of Yugoslavia. 
We have 17 people studying Russian at Kiev University right now. Two of them are couples from Grace Community Church, and Grace Community Church has, has committed to three others. From last year's graduating seminary class, Grace Community Church sacrificed and made a commitment to send five couples to Ukraine fully supported. We need other churches to do that all across America. And those of you who feel led into a missions assignment, I want to tell you, you know, unless something blocks you, be planning on a missions career. That's really the wisest way to do it. I really want to encourage you to do that. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Huh? That could be more at the center of God's will for your life. That is God's will for your life. To participate in taking the gospel. Now, now, if you get to do that all day long, every day, what? If God will let you do that, do that. But he wants some of you to be doctors, and some of you to be teachers, and some of you to be lawyers. And if that's what he wants for you, and that's what he puts in your heart, do it and do it with all your heart. But in the process, seize every opportunity to advance the kingdom in that sphere of influence. But... If you aren't compelled in your heart to do one of those things, if God isn't leading you into some kind of secular sphere of influence, He must be leading you to participate in taking the gospel to the nations of planet Earth. I even preached part of the seminary yesterday and tomorrow. I'm convinced we don't need one more pastor in America. And we don't need one more church in America. We need many fewer churches. We're talking about cities of 50,000, 100,000, 150,000 don't have one church and everybody wanting to get saved. Do we need more pastors in America? Answer the question. Let's stand and pray together.